Um, this, two things before we get, three things, wow, three things before we get going. One, if you need a Bible today, we have them for you. If you don't have a Bible that's your own, take it, write your name in it, take it home, um, you know, put it in your car, uh, read it all the time. It's a good book. Um, so if you have one of those, if you need one of those, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Um, and if you don't need it, then just sort of uh, give it back as, as, as you leave. Or if you have stacks of these at home now, that you realize, oh man, I take one every week, you know, just bring it and bring back your little stack so that other people can use them um, or give them away to, to, to friends. That's good. Um, two, some of you are asking, Desiree and I and our kids had a wonderful vacation. I don't know why it's weird for me to say Desiree and make that name stretch out long. I, that was weird. But um, we had a wonderful vacation. Thank you. Everybody's been asking about it. We were up at Hume Lake um, for a week, and that was phenomenal. And then also, all day yesterday, I kept thinking about a good friend of mine, uh, would have turned 72. Uh, yesterday was Gordon's birthday, and many of you uh, were here when Gordon was the senior pastor, and um, I thought, you know, he, I'm not wearing it the way he would have liked. I should be in a coat and slacks, but this is his, one of his ties, and I think about my buddy Gordon on his birthday every year. So, um, let's dig right into it. We're in a series in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 2 this week, and um, it's a long stretch, so we've got to dig right into it. It's a big stretch of Scripture, but I was toying with breaking it up, but, but you really can't because it's really the theological center of the book. And in order to understand the rest of the letter to the Ephesians, in order to understand everything, you kind of need to understand all of chapter 2 all in one shot. So... Um, Cancel your lunch plans. This is going to take a while. No, I'm kidding. It's not going to take a while. Um, But a couple things as we dig into it. One of the reasons why we're in the series of Ephesians is because Ephesus is a city just like L.A. It's just like where we are at today. They um, worshipped really weird gods, the goddess of of Diana, the goddess of of Roma. They uh, worshipped the emperor. Uh, they had all kinds of strange and competing philosophies. Some of these philosophies that we deal with today, one of them was Stoic philosophy. It was just del- the, the idea was, you know, reason is the highest level of, of, of understanding, and you have to be a reasonable person. You have to use r- logic and reason for everything. So in order to not get too wrapped up in a certain logic, then the best idea is just to be apathetic and to not care. We've got that philosophy that's prevalent in our um, history today that it's okay just to simply be apathetic and to not care about anything. There was this other philosophy um, called Epicurean philosophy, and that's still alive today. And the idea was that the God, or God or gods, threw particles down into the earth, and these particles spontaneously formed into human creatures. And they spontaneously formed life. They just kind of spontaneously came together with no direction. It was kind of purposeless. It was kind of aimless. Wouldn't you say that philosophy is alive and well today? Actually, it's probably what's taught more in schools than anything else today. Um, just a brief note, if, if any of you ever have a desire to read Origin of the Species or any of the other Darwin books, which if you're a biology person, by all means read them. Um, if not, great material. My wife has fallen asleep to me listening to these books. Um, very boring, but very good reads. But essentially, this is what it is. It's Darwinism is a new form of Epicureanism. This was alive in Ephesus at the time. And here now, Paul starts one of the first churches 
preaching this new community, preaching this new gospel, preaching this new way, right smack in the middle of this community. So the reason why we're going through the book of Ephesians is because one day we wake up and realize we're living in Ephesus. All the same things happened there that happened then. There's not a whole lot of difference other than, you know, modern amenities. So let's dig right into it today. We're going to go chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And by the way, Pastor Earl preached a sermon last week on a prayer for the church. And, and just so you know, if there's some of you out there who are just like really interested in Paul and what he wrote and things like that, uh, chapter 1 and 2, that's not a natural break. Um, that's a break that was put in there later so that people can find their place. Uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 flow right together. It's the same thought. So chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that, no, so that no one could boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a number of things that happen right here in the first ten verses that, that sort of play on each other. Paul is kind of this genius scholar who could write these different word plays that are so much fun for Dorks like me to, you know, study and, and like, you know, you guys probably don't like to take two, three commentaries on vacation, but this guy, man, I eat that stuff. I laid in the hammock at, at Cabinet Hume and read commentaries. So that's a glimpse into my, my personal life. Um, <laughs> some of you are like, man, we're not going to hang out with him. Anyways, the, the, there's this interesting play. He talks about the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air and seated on heavenly realms with Christ. This idea that, that in this time, in the, in the first century, the belief of the heavens was very interesting. We now say heaven and we think someplace far away. In fact, we raise our hands to heaven somewhere, right? I mean, we, we don't really know exactly where heaven is. We know it's with God um, but we don't know where is it in a distant galaxy or something. Who knows? But the idea here, one of the things that he's doing is this play between good and evil in the very beginning of this, of this section. He's talking about the ruler of the kingdom of, her- of air, which is Satan. In other words, which would have been the lowest realm of the heavens. Because in the Hebrew mind, there was three levels of heaven. The air which surrounds us, the ground the area which surrounds us, and far and above where the stars are. And that area would have been the first, second, and third levels of heaven. So Satan inhabits the lowest level of, uh, of 
of the heavens. He's not even allowed up into the upper realms. And that was the idea that Paul was playing on. And he talks about Satan um, right in the very beginning because the idea is that we have been, uh, if we're living in sin, then we have been influenced by Satan. And one of the things that I love what he says in Colossians 1, 1.13, he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Brought us into himself, who he, who, you know, he loves us. He's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness. And this is the point that Paul is trying to make. He's trying to make the point that there are two kingdoms that are radically opposed to each other. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And, and that God is trying to draw us out of that other kingdom and bring us to himself. Our salvation is dependent on God bringing us out of darkness. And one of the things for us, it's hard to believe, in, especially in America in the 21st century, that there's actually an evil that exists. But if you allow your mind to run with that thought for a little bit, does evil actually exist? It doesn't take too long to look back into history. In fact, we can look at recent history, what's happening in ISIS. We can look, at, we can look back at Hitler or Pol Pot. We can look back at all kinds of things and see the personification of evil existing in our world. So we know that it exists. But then we have to ask the question that C.S. Lewis asks, how do we know that there is an evil? We must know that there's a justice. How do I know that a line is squiggly unless I've seen a straight line? How do we know? Because there's a God in heaven that is good, and we know what goodness is. We could taste goodness, can't we? We could see goodness. We could sniff it out. And what Paul is saying here, the author is saying here is, listen, there is evil in this world, and you know it because it's twisted. It's a parody of what is good. Just like Tolerance in the last 20, 30 years has sort of just become a parody of what real agape, true love is. This a parody. Evil is just this parody of what is supposed to be good. Is deceiving us to think that it is good. And so when the early church fathers, when you start reading in the, the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, when they begin talking about evil, one of the biggest things that they bring up at the time is discernment. And they pray that, that God would give them the gift of discernment. And what discernment means is that you could tell between good and evil, between right and wrong. And then when decisions come up, we say, Lord, what do you want us to do here? Give us discernment. Help us to understand the right thing. Help us to know what's bad. Help us to know what's good. And the earliest church fathers talked about this in huge ways. You have to understand, they didn't have a put-together Bible. Some of them had loose scrolls. But the early church fathers were educating the church who probably couldn't read. And so they taught them to pray prayers of discernment, which I think is a great practice for us to come into. You say, Lord, there's evil in this world. So what is it? What, you know, it does, I know the Bible talks about Satan as a roaring lion desire, desiring to devour me. So God, is this a good decision or a bad decision? Is this wise or not? Would you help me know the right thing to do or not so good thing to do? I mean, just help me out here. Discernment. It's a very important part of our Christian lives. It's a very important part of walking with God to say, Lord, are you in this? Are you in this? I don't know about you, but I could use some discernment in my life. 
probably you could use some discernment too with work, with family, knowing what decisions to make, knowing what words to say, knowing what opportunities to take and opportunities that you shouldn't take. But one of the things I love about this passage, he starts, he opens it right up with Satan. He says, listen, there's evil in the world. There just is. But then he talks about like, he, he, he begins to change his pronouns, his words a little bit around. He talks about them, the Gentiles. And then he starts to do something really interesting. Paul starts to include himself in the text. And listen to what he says here. He says, all of us, I mean, now he's including himself. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Everybody would have been shocked by this. This is Paul. This is the guy who was a religious scholar, Pharisee, who became a Christian, who was still a scholar. I mean, brilliant mind, Saul of Tarsus. He became a a, a Christian. This is like if Billy Graham were to say, I was evil, deserving of wrath. I mean, it would have like shocked audiences. Of course, before Jesus, I was too. Absolutely. Without him, I still am. But Paul includes himself a religious Jew, an old-time religious Jew, a scholar, begins to say, listen, just like you Gentiles, I was just like you. This is huge in that time because there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the things Paul's trying to do in this church is to bridge the gap and to say, listen, there ought not to be any separation anymore. And he builds that case more and more as we go along. But the first thing he does as an act of unity is to say, hey, look at me. I'm this religious guy, but I was just like you. We're no different. I'm saved by grace. You're saved by grace. It doesn't matter whether I'm writing half the New Testament or not. We're both in the same boat here. So Paul then equates himself with these folks. And you have to understand how just revolutionary this would have been to say, listen, I was dead in my sin and now I'm alive in my Creator. And then Paul goes on to talk about grace through faith. And, it, and he says, <clears throat> excuse me, Um, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You know, in this time, when you talk about other religions that were alive, you have to understand that Paul is writing his letters in the context of a world that had all kinds of other different religions around, paganism, uh, pantheism, um, all kinds of different sorts of things. And there was religions that said, by your merit, you will be saved. By what you do, by your good work, you will be saved. And as Christians, we believe that it's nothing that we could boast of. Our salvation has nothing to do with us, has everything to do with the cross. Everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross to shed his blood to forgive us of the wrong that we have done. What Paul's really doing here is he's sort of pointing back to his letter in Romans about justification. And what is justification? Justification is essentially a legal term that helps us to understand that we are made just before God, that we are made right before God because of the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ. That in, you know, it's one of those, um, uh, it's one of those analogies, it's a legal analogy, that we are made just before God. And so what he's saying here 
is unlike other religions that are around right now. Unlike the idea, like, think of the other most dominant thought about good and bad. What is, what is it? We say it all the time. It's karma, right? And we don't, I think as Americans, unless you really understand um, Eastern Buddhism and things like that, we don't really understand what we're saying. But when we say karma, the idea there is that you absolutely have to pay for your evil, the bad things that you've done in your life. That's why you die and are reborn into a different animal or creature or whatever, and, and you know, you've got to pay for your karma, the bad things that you've done. You've got to pull that more good karma and, and to over, outdo your bad karma. I don't know about you, but I mean, if I was subject to karma, I'd probably come back as like an ant or something. We saw huge ants at Hume Lake, by the way. They were like that big. They scared the daylights out of us. One of them was crawling on Desiree, and it just whack, it hit it, and I got it, but it scared us all. You know, I'm a big baby, but never mind. Let's keep moving here. Um. But, no, karma, that's my point. Well, that's where we're getting to. Karma essentially says you get treated as your sins deserve. And one of the ways we explain Jesus' work on the cross to people who believe in karma is that Jesus took his righteousness, his karma, and he took yours. And his righteousness is so pure and so righteous that means you never have to pay for that. That he took your brokenness He took your junk and replaced it with his righteousness. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus has taken our brokenness, all the things that we did when we were subject to the rule of Satan, all those things, and he's redeemed us. He's made us right before God. He's making us new into something brand new. In fact, a new creation is what he'll talk about. And then he says, you are God's workmanship. You are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, there's been this debate over the centuries. Is it good works or is it justification by faith? And, you know, I think that debate's pretty much been settled, but we'll just rehash it for two seconds. And give you the Christian Orthodox position on it. That way you've got it. And if somebody wants to have that debate with you, then great, you've got it. Anyways, the idea is because of God's good work in us, because of grace, because of salvation, because he has taken the junk in our old hearts and replaced it with his heart, we want to do good things. In fact, good works should be a sign of what's happened to us inwardly. So helping the poor, I mean, helping the poor, helping um, somebody out, praying with a friend, visiting somebody who's sick, doing stuff like that, the good stuff that you do should come out of the fact that you've been saved by grace and that Jesus loves you and that that's simply an extension of who you are. You're not saved by those good works. But the God who, who created you is a good God, and therefore he has put his goodness in you and wants to see that come out. That doesn't mean we don't do good works. It simply means the good works that we do come out of the fact that we are saved and created and molded by a good God. They come out of a deep inward place in us. And so we were created for good works. We were created to do good work. And it says that God prepared it in advance for us to do. So what's the word we use for this in the church? We call it a ministry, right? We call it a ministry. So God has prepared in advance for you a ministry to do. 
I happen to know, because my wife's the children's director, we need more help at VBS. I happen to know that there's, at surf camp, they're going to need some more volunteers. I happen to know that there's a lot that needs to be done around here. And maybe God has created you for some of that work. I don't know. Maybe God's impressing on your heart. Um, I mean, Andy's so gracefully jumped in and, and been our drummer. We've been out of a drummer. And so maybe God is impressing on your heart. Hey, I, I could drum. I need to jump in here and drum. God is prepared to work for you to do. But it's out of the grace that he has given you. It's out of the forgiveness that he has offered. And it's out of that place of understanding and reconciling who you are. Just like Paul said. Paul in this text said, hey, I was just like you. For you to understand that, that I've had stuff in my life that's broken. I've got junk that's messed up. And I need to be made new with God. So we're not saved by the good works, but the good works reveal a God that is good and alive within us. Let's keep going because there's so much to hit on today. Verse 11. So the first part about this, the first 10 verses are all in justification about you getting right with God. That's as simple as I could break that down. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Aren't you glad we don't use names like that anymore, by the way? Anyways, I was thinking about that this week. I was like, what will we, anyways, what will we call ourselves? Which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that as, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose By the way, any time that anybody says in the Bible, his purpose or God's purpose, you should really pay attention. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he has put to death, by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So one of the really important things that you, we have to see here, and we're going <coughs> to sort of flip this verse upside down and, and talk about the, the last part first. One of the most important things to notice is that God is creating a new humanity. I mean, the, the, the text actually says that he is creating a new humanity in his one body. In the body that was on the cross, he is creating a brand new humanity out of that. In the body that was resurrected, there's a new humanity coming. So what does that mean? So this is all part of Paul's theology. In fact, as we dive into the biblical text and ask ourselves these questions, what does this mean? It's actually really important to understand that this isn't just some isolated point that Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians, but this is actually his broader theme that he writes through all of his texts. In fact, if we get this point, we understand Paul. If we get this point right here. So uh, just go on a little journey with me real quick. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 
Paul has this, it's one of the greatest chapters on resurrection in the Bible. And he talks about what the gospel is, then he talks about resurrection and why resurrection is so important for us to believe in. So 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says this, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, Paul is making a point about a new humanity. He was making the point that Adam was the first person. Adam, by the way, meaning humanity, was the first human. And he sinned, and and he causes death to come on him. That was part of the curse, Genesis chapter 3, was that you died as a result of your sin. Man's days would be numbered. And so Adam died, and all humanity with him died and died and died. And Paul is making the point right here that when Jesus rose from the dead, he is the new Adam creating a new line of humanity. That at the resurrection of Jesus, all of history shifted. It's the pivot on which all of history turns. The resurrection of Jesus. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that now creates this new humanity. See, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus brings new life. Therefore, we are made new into new creatures. And this is what God is calling us. This is the way he views us as new creations. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that first section of Ephesians 2, if you've been saved by grace through faith, faith that Jesus actually did this stuff for you, faith that he can actually heal you, faith that he could actually take your sins from you, faith that he could actually make you right before a holy God, faith. So if you have that faith and then you've been saved by grace, Saved by grace for good works. What does that look like? You're being made new. That's Paul's entire point. In fact, it's all over his writings. Let's turn, turn with me real quick to uh, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is a, is a terrific passage on this. 5.17, this is the verse I read this morning as we started worship. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The point he is making is that old stuff in your life that that was dominated by sin, that died with Adam. And the Creator came. The Creator, Jesus, came, who is present with God in creation, came to make us brand new into new kinds of humans, to new kinds of people, to begin to live with God eternally now. That's the purpose of Jesus coming to make us brand new. Um, if we flip to Romans 8, we'd have to spend about an hour and a half there, so I thought I would just sum it up in about one sentence. It reminds us that the resurrection of Jesus will eventually redeem all of creation. This is Paul's theme all through his books. Galatians 3, um, 26 and 28 says, So in Christ, all of you are children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The idea is there's no longer divisions. See how he says Jew or Gentile. There's there's no um, religious distinction. Or a very important point here is there's no racial distinction in God's new kingdom. There's neither slave nor free. Bond servant was a word uh, that was used before this. This is not slavery as we knew it, um, 17th century colonial 
uh, racism that was originally essentially invented to discriminate against Native Americans, um, that's not the type of racism we're talking about or slavery we're talking about. We're talking about the slavery that indentured one person to yourself so that they could pay off debt. And that person was considered among one of the lowest citizenship classes. But then when they were out of slavery, they weren't low anymore. But what he was saying is God's kingdom eliminates class distinction. It eliminates racism. It eliminates class distinction. And then there is neither male or female gender discrimination. Back in in early times of the church, it was, hey, if you're a female, actually early times of of the first century, women had no authority. In fact, it's only, and especially in America, it's only been in the last hundred years that women have had even the right to vote and the right to own property and the right for all these things. They've had property rights for a little longer. But what Paul is saying here is you have to understand how revolutionary this gospel is. It tears these things down. Because the work of, of Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the words that he used before, was meant to build up distinction. Was meant to build up things that, that set us apart, that made us not want to be friends. And what Paul is saying, no, the kingdom of God makes you into a new creation, puts you in a new family, and, and is God's plan for the world. It's huge. It's okay, Chloe. <laughs> how cute she is. So why is this important? One, justification. Big fancy word for being right with God. And once we're justified with God, then it becomes, and this is an underlying section in your notes, our mission is to partner with God to help put things right in the world. That's the point. When, when we have our mission, I mean, when we're justified by faith, then God has put us right with him. And then our mission becomes to help put things right in the world, to partner with God. This is why our vision is transforming lives, families, and communities through the truth, power, and love of Jesus Christ because we believe that God actually wants to partner with you, that you are part of God's plan, that he has a work prepared for you because you are his workmanship, that he wants to partner with you and work with you to transform families, to transform lives, to transform communities, and whatever realm you're working in, inside of the church and out. So we really believe this. This is our vision for our church. We believe that Paul here is giving an incredible sense of purpose in this new citizenship in God's kingdom. Because the early Romans who would have been reading this letter, would have understood that citizenship in Rome was worth its weight in gold. It was extremely valuable. In fact, you couldn't even be executed as a Roman citizen. So it was like if you screwed up, you wouldn't be executed. That's a big deal in uh, a a trigger-happy execution culture because you would stay alive if you stole a loaf of bread or something. The idea here is that you are this brand new citizen, this brand new kingdom created to partner with the living God. So uh, one of the questions that I thought of as I was preparing this through this passage this week was, what if we began to look at anything dividing the church as demonic? What if we began to look at it that way? See, Paul is referencing here, early on he references the temple. 
And he says, he's basically saying a new temple is coming. He, he talks about the Gentiles. He said, you were divided by this wall. You were separate. Um, you were without hope, all this stuff. And he, he essentially says, you were divided by this wall of hostility. And what he's actually referencing is the temple. The temple in, in Judaism was laid out to convey separateness. God was at the center in the holies of holies, and each other area out is sort of like you had to be a high priest to go into the center of the holy holies. You had to be a, um, a Levite to go so far. You had to be um, you know, a good Jew in great standing to go so far. Women could only go so far. G- Gentiles could only go so far. It was laid out to convey the separation. And Paul's making a point. There's a wall the Gentiles couldn't pass through. And with Jesus, God has broken that wall down and made us one new creation. So he's beginning to break down these hostilities. In fact, he's making a brand new, the idea here is unity. Unity. A brand new creation in him. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So what if as a church we had no divisions? What if we had nothing I mean, we look at the news, and if you begin to look at the news in a different set of eyes, you, know, you just put on your glasses, your, your analytical, critical glasses, and it's like, what are they trying to cause us to fear? One, the news is trying to instill fear in you. That's, they sell fear. That's their, that's their biggest selling point is fear. Two, what are they trying to divide us over? <laughs> right now in our country, it's like economics and race and things like this and beliefs about gender, that that's what our news is trying to divide us over. What if as a church we just said, hey, we won't be divided? We are called to be the people of God in this world. You won't divide us. But that's essentially what goes on in our world. And when you think about it, Paul's list in Galatians, he has the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And, and if you grew up in the church, you've probably memorized this, this uh, you know, peace, patience, kindness, love. You probably got like a, a badge or something like that for memorizing these, these verses. But one of the things that he talks about is the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh. And three out of the 11, so almost a quarter of what he says is discord, dissensions, infractions. Discord, dissension, and fractions. See, we were created to be one. The church made new in God's image, you redeemed by God, means that everybody else who said yes to Jesus, that we're supposed to be one with them. We're supposed to be united as a church. But what do we get divided over? Politics, race, disputable beliefs in the church that don't matter. The cult of personality, money. I mean, you could go on and on and on. We get divided over the littlest things, the way we spend it, building things, this or that. We just get divided. It's okay to have opinions, but at the end of the day, I, I am so, I, I'm so amazed. Our board is so great. Whenever we have like even, I won't even use the word divisions, but whenever we have like hey, we don't even really know what to do here. We have like a good discussion on something. We always come out united. Nobody leaves that and goes, I'm leaving this church. I'm out of here. Everybody has just such a wonderful spirit of, well, hey, this is God's property. This is God's place. We are stewards of what God has for us. And, and so we don't have any major divisions on our board because of that. 
But Jesus laid down his life. And the point when he says you were a brand new creation, a new humanity out of the two, the purpose, the point is unity. To create a brand new unity. And it says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body through the cross by which he death their hostility. See, God wants to make you a new kind of human. This writer, Paul, his, his theology was that Jesus was the new Adam, creating in you a brand new life, replacing your old heart of stone with the heart of flesh. That's the idea. And then he talks about this new habitation, verses 19 through 22, and then we'll, we'll finish up this morning. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God, God's people, um, and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ in himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You're a new creation. In order. And by the way, the you here is plural. It's not just you individually. That was never a mindset that first century people had. The you is plural. It's the church. You are a brand new creation, all of you, so that you could be the new dwelling place of God. You're the new temple of God. See, before the temple was in one location and you could enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. But the idea is you're made new, a new creation, and, and God wants to make you perfectly so that he could put his image in you and so that you could run around this world and do amazing things, good works for him because you've been made new, because you're part of the new humanity that Paul talks about. And a new humanity needs a new habitation, Paul is talking about redeemed people living in redeemed community. Why is this so revolutionary? I began to think about this this week, and I thought, why is this so revolutionary? This seems revolutionary to me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Why? Because Paul is talking about a brand new way to live in community. Paul's talking about a different way to live in community. And think about it. The church has lasted 2,000 years. We've been doing pretty good. I mean, there's been divisions, yes. You know, the, the, the Reformation broke up the church into a billion pieces, and, and, but the church still existed. And then there was other, you know, divisions between Calvinism and Wesley Arminianism, and there's divisions between, you know, things in our culture, like the, the wars and civil wars and, you know, population shifts. There's been divisions, Sure but the church is still around. I begin to think, this is so revolutionary because every attempt for human community building eventually fails. It eventually fails. Let me just prove that to you. In the last hundred years, communism. Think about for how many people put their hope in communism. How many people lived in the communist bloc? We're talking millions of people. And that narrative of how community is formed failed. There was um, totalitarianism. I mean, look at the Arab Spring. Essentially, totalitarian governments, they thought the way to build humanity was around my standards, was around what I said the community should do. Those all failed. They failed miserably. And when you begin to think about it, fascism, a number, there was a few countries representing millions of people, that failed. 
monarchs failed. Socialism in many countries has failed. Right now, our democracy is being tested, even in America. Capitalism, 2008, looked like that was going to fail, right? Many of you looked at your 401ks and said, uh-oh, 2008, capitalism might go down. We, every attempt to build human community eventually fails. Even philosophers today are looking at Paul and saying, what is this idea of this new humanity and this new habitation that Paul is talking about? It's this new community. The church has lasted through all that time. That was my point. The church has lasted through all of this time, whereas every other attempt for human community fails. They're all subject to evil. They fail. What Paul is saying is God wants to create a new community, a new humanity, which will form new communities which he will dwell in. That's simply it. A new humanity so that new communities can form so that he could dwell in them and do amazing things. There's uh, two more fill-ins that I just want you to get because these are really, when you take this entire, you know, 35, 40-minute message and truncate it down, it's two points. Jesus wants to make me new. Jesus wants to make me new. thought I'd make it as simple as possible. He wants to make you brand new. Wherever, whatever baggage you came in with, whatever brokenness, whatever junk that was in your past, Jesus just wants to wipe that clean and say, why don't you start over with me? I want to make you into a brand new kind of person. And then he wants you to go on mission with him. He wants you to go on mission with him. I think the words I use is, Oh, yeah, the mission was the fill-in. Jesus wants me to go on mission with him. So in Ephesus, Rome has built this new community around worshiping Diana, around worshiping the emperor, around different kinds of philosophies. In the midst of where Paul is writing to the church and telling them something huge is happening, you're part of a brand new community. In fact, you're part of this movement that will transcend human governments, that will go long beyond what human governments ever thought was possible. You're part of a brand new community. But the community isn't intended to look inward. The community is intended to look outward to a broken and hurting world. The community is intended to look outward and to be the kind of disciples that help the world come to be reconciled to God, that help a broken and hurting world to come and know Jesus. That's what you're intended for. Paul is writing to a people telling them, you have huge amounts of purpose. Because as Roman citizens, they thought they had all the purpose in the world to be a Roman citizen. There's letters and texts and poems about how great it was to be a Roman citizen. And what Paul is telling them is, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is even greater. Because you are God's mission. You are God's mission. I don't think that I could say that enough at our church. You are God's mission. Maybe you're here today, and you're living one foot in, one foot out. You know, one foot is sort of like, I enjoy kingdoms of the world, and I enjoy some of this other human community type stuff. And I also enjoy some of this, you know, church life stuff. I don't even know what to call it. I've been a Christian so long, I'm like missing terminology in my brain. Um, uh, But, you know, maybe, maybe that's you. You're living one foot in and one foot out. You know, for you, you know exactly what that means. I just want to invite you today. Jesus wants you to be a part of his brand new community. 
He wants you to be a part of a, a new redeemed humanity. In a larger movement that spans 2 billion people, it's like 2.6 billion people now around the world. Jesus wants you to be a part of that. And yeah, you might, want, you might come to a church of those 2 billion people. But God wants to create in you a new heart so that you could be a world changer. I really believe that. So maybe you're living one foot in, one foot out. I think Ephesians 2, the message of it is that God wants to redeem you personally. And two, God wants to use you for the world. And you can't do that one foot in, one foot out. You got to be both feet in. Let's pray. Father, there are some here today who simply need to, to surrender. They need to surrender their lives to you. They, they simply need to say, Jesus, I am yours. I want to be a part of your new humanity. And Lord, we know that you offer all grace. And simply what you call us to is life of faith. And God, that you give us grace. No matter what we bring to the table, you redeem it. You make it new. God, so many of us in this church, in this place, have dealt with the, just the junk of life, just the stuff that weighs us down. God, so many of us have made decisions that don't honor you or don't glorify you, and we come fearful to your throne saying, would you even accept a sinner like me? And Lord, we know because of the cross, the answer is absolutely yes. I choose you. I want you to be a part of my new humanity. There may be some of you here who simply need to say yes to Jesus and simply need to say, Lord, I'm in. And I'm going to start following you. And I don't know what that means yet, but I'm going to start following you. So Father, I pray that if there's any of those folks here today, that they would let someone know that they've said yes to you. Lord, you'd impress on their hearts to, to begin the process of becoming a disciple and what that looks like. And Lord, that you would help them grow in your life. Father, change our hearts to be more like yours. Help us to live as new kinds of humans and help us, help us to be a united community. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.